The next CMO podcast explores topics that are on the minds of forward-thinking marketing executives, from leadership and strategy to emerging technologies. And we bring these topics to life by interviewing leading experts in their fields. The next CMO is sponsored by Plana, makers of the world's first AI-based marketing leadership platform. And hosted by me, Peter Mahoney, the founder and CEO of Plana, along with my co-host, Kelsey Kraft. In this episode, Kelsey and I speak to Anastasia Lang. Anastasia is a fascinating person. She's the founder and CEO of a company called Creative X, a company that makes technology that powers creative excellence for the world's most loved brands. You'll learn a lot more about what that means as we speak to Anastasia, but she also has an incredible background, including a multiple company founder. She was a Googler for five years. She was a brand strategy consultant at Interbrand and just has an amazing background when it comes to brand strategy and creative production at very large scale. During the conversation with Anastasia, we talk about how to optimize content at very large scale from thousands or hundreds of thousands of content assets for very large brands. How do you manage compliance in a incredibly complex world where you have multiple agencies and sometimes even individuals creating content for you, dealing with standards across multiple agencies, considerations for smaller brands, how they can maintain consistency and quality at scale. And she also has some amazing advice for CMOs. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anastasia. We're super happy to have you on the next CMO podcast. Would love to learn a little bit more about you and what you do at CreativeX. Sure. So at CreativeX, I am the CEO and the founder, which really means I do all the jobs that don't have people doing them. And that could be from buying the toilet paper to writing copy for the website to designing a new product we're going to launch. It's a catch-all. The way I think about it is my job is always to put myself out of a job. So I come in, do the early stages of something, and then hopefully hire people much smarter than me to do it a little bit better. That's the best description I've heard for an early stage uh, CEO. And I can definitely relate to all those things, Anastasia. (laughs) And it's funny, we're both at uh, relatively similar stages as a company, same general size. So I I think we can definitely relate to that. So tell us and our listeners a little bit more about CreativeX, because it's really a fascinating concept. Sure, absolutely. So CreativeX, the idea is really pretty simple, right? What we saw a couple of years ago was that the way that brands are communicating has shifted to be predominantly visual. Increasingly, the majority of the content they create and the majority of the content that they put in front of their consumers is imagery and video. And at the same time, as their amount of content produced increases, it's gotten a lot harder to ensure that they're following best practices, they're leveraging creative learnings, they're staying consistent with their brand identity. And we built technology with the hopes of helping them scale up content production while ensuring creative quality, brand consistency, compliance with regulation, as well as talent representation in their content. If you break it down what level, what that really means is when we go into an organization, we try to understand what does creative quality mean to you? What what does your brand stand for? We automate all of that detection. And then we can provide both real-time reporting in terms of how they're doing What is the impact of quality, consistency, and all of that, as well as give them tools to be smarter about the content they and their agency partners and their marketing teams are producing. 
So would you call yourselves a participant in the digital asset management world or or do you shun that designation and have something else? No, we don't shun it, but we actually partner with digital asset managers. We don't consider ourselves a digital asset manager. The way we partner with digital asset managers is a lot of that content can sit in a dam, but the problem is a lot of bad content sits in dams, meaning that when we, and actually it's a useful place to take a step back. When we first start working with with a, a large brand, most of our clients are Fortune 500. When we roll out our technology, we roll it out globally. When we first look at their content and we just start to look at creative quality, right? Let's see the basics. How much of your content meets your internal standard of what quality content looks like? The average we find is only 20%, right? Which means that there are millions, if not billions of advertising dollars being spent on content that doesn't even meet your own standards. And the way this relates to the dam is the dam is actually the inflection point for a lot of that kind of bad content to spread. Because if you upload a piece of content into a dam and it doesn't meet your standards, now it's discovered by other people. And so what we've done is we see digital asset managers as partners where we've been able to go in and actually integrate with them to create a seamless workflow. So if you now put a piece of content into a dam, that, that dam will ping CreativeX, we'll evaluate it for all of those things that are unique and specific to the brand to make sure that content is, again, meeting the best practices they have, uh, consistent with their brand, et cetera. We'll send it back into the dam with our scoring and our criteria. And then each dam and each brand can make a decision as to uh, what is that threshold of a minimum acceptable score for that content to actually be allowed to be published into a dam. So you're a digital Milena. So <laughs> Milena was the amazing brand strategist who worked for me at my last company. And her role was that last mile right? To say that, does this meet our, our brand quality standards? And so that it's fascinating because one of the things that we found before we had a, a real live Milena was that we, we had wild diversity in execution, of course, yeah. and you can totally see this problem. So I, I completely resonate with this issue where you have someone who might have taken a set of brand standards. And of course, brand standards are, are pretty loose. It's like the English language is a brand, is a standard, but you mm -hmm. can create terrible things with it. So same thing with a set of brand rules, you can implement them poorly. And then all of a sudden, you're starting to reflect these images all over the place and you're eroding instead of creating brand value uh, along the way. So it, it's that that's amazing. So tell me a little bit about, cause I probably am thinking about it, I suspect way too simplistically. So think of, tell me about the, the kinds of issues that enterprises experience when it comes to this variability and quality of their brand assets? There, there are so many. I guess starting at fundamental levels, the, the first one, the most basic one is if you're a large enterprise, you really have no idea of, the, of all the content you're creating. What does it look like? How much of it is on brand versus off brand? Is my production media budget, are they being spent efficiently or inefficiently? So the first thing we do, which was not even intentional, is we give you a real-time view of all that content that your brand's putting out there, which is actually what we've heard from many CMOs is the first time that they can actually see a view as to like their global content footprint. The second thing that we do is what we think of as media efficiency and, and really budget preservation. And when we get into brand standards, that's one thing, but there's even a lower hanging fruit, which is 
is all your content optimized to even have a chance of succeeding on the different platforms you're putting it on? So what is quality on Facebook is different than what is quality on YouTube versus Snapchat because the content production speeds are moving so quickly and the shelf life of content is so short. There's a heavy recycle culture, right? We'll take a YouTube video, which is 16 by nine, we'll run it in an Instagram or sorry, nine by 16, we'll run it in an Instagram slot, waste all that real estate, et cetera. And so even getting those basics right to make sure that your ad has a chance of being seen and heard for that environment is another big problem, even though it's still hanging to fruit. The other thing very specific to big organizations is a lot of organizations are obviously trying to learn. Like every creative execution is a chance to learn something about what's working, what's not, et cetera. But if you are Unilever or Heineken, how do you scale those learnings? Let's say we find that the presence of product in your ads is really impactful. If you're any one of these companies, you now have to deploy that learning across hundreds of, if not thousands of agencies, thousands of marketeers globally, and then somehow enforce or help them keep track of this best practice on top of everything else they're doing, it's impossible. And so what we do is we provide tools to actually help them roll out and scale these learnings that drive to increase effectiveness. And we give them tools so that they don't have to keep this in mind. They come to CreativeX, upload a piece of content, and we'll tell them based on the latest data we have, yeah, this is good to go or no, it's not. And to do that, Anastasia, is it necessary for the the brands to kind of tag or categorize their stuff or does your technology discover attributes and in and auto categorize some of these things so that it can understand it beyond human scale? Yes. So that's the beauty of it is before when you think about creative, again, we look at creative excellence as the combination of quality, consistency, representation, and, and compliance. When you look at the pursuit of creative excellence for marketers, 10 years ago, you didn't need technology to do this because you would look at your ad and you'd be like, yep, this looks good. And maybe that ad would run for a month or six months if it was a television campaign. But now you couldn't do this by sheer brute human force. It, it's simply unmanageable to, to think about you would have to manually tag and categorize 100, 200,000 pieces of, of content. So yes, th that is one of our big, one of our big value adds is we take those things that are really specific to your brand and we actually automate the ability to detect them at scale, which is what makes it possible for you to then get a very quick view into your creative quality and your consistency and all of that as well as roll out tools to help everyone march to the beat of the same drum. So I imagine an, another key area that you mentioned is, is about compliance. And because and yes. I, I see violations of this all the time from really big brands, and it really shocks me that someone is using something that's clearly copyrighted material, or they've, they've changed something and they're sharing some meme or something like that feels like, oh my God, I would never do that. Why is this big brand doing that thing? C can you talk about the impact of these problems? So why does that matter these days and do people even care? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because uh, everything has to be tied to ROI. And so when we started working on the compliance product, we thought, but we thought about is fee avoidance. When it comes to advertising, there's a lot of legislation, regulation, especially if you're in consumer healthcare, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, gambling, pharmaceuticals. But actually these teams and these brands that are in these spaces had built very large legal teams 
to help manually make sure that all the compliance guidelines were being adhered to. So it wasn't really a question of fee avoidance. They'd gotten really good at that. It was a combination of it is a tremendous amount of manual work to do this. The guidelines change maybe every year. They're different for every single market. So when you have brand guidelines, at least those are global for the most part. When you have regulation standards, if you're a global company, they're going to change in every single market. But the thing that we found when we looked into this is that consumer rights violations, especially when they're public and get some media attention, actually negatively impact the overall value of the company. So we now live in, and there's a great research paper on this that, that I can share afterwards if folks are interested, but because of, the, because of the, the fast moving media cycle and how quickly these things can become inflamed, when something is seen as violating or being slightly misleading, consumers now know their rights better than before, it can actually move stock price. Yeah, you can definitely see some behavior eroding pretty significant enterprise value if, if you do things the wrong way, which is messy. So if you think about the, the problem that we're talking about, very broad problem, obviously, that some CMOs may not even be thinking about. And I wonder if the presence and complexity of your agency relationships compounds these problems. So how should you think about this, these kinds of issues when it comes to hiring and managing a slate of agencies? It's an interesting question. The way that we've worked is we work directly with the brand and the brand inevitably mandates that all their agencies use the tool because they want that global visibility and transparency. I think the reason uh, that this is tough from an agency point of view is because running an agency is a very competitive business. I think as a result of that competition, agencies hold their cards very close to their chest. We've even occasionally had issues where the brand is asking an agency to get access to its own content. So we can measure and, and score it for them and help them understand how they're doing and have to jump through a lot of hoops to get it because the perception is more transparency is not my friend sometimes. And that's been something that we've had to overcome. I, I think Ultimately, the trend that we're seeing as a result of in-housing, as a result of more and more brands wanting to get more control of their data, is agencies Agencies ha are having to change and are having to give brands a little bit more control because in-housing is, again, becoming very real and starting to eat into some of that business. I think the way that brands are trying to change our conversation a little bit is by opting their data, agency A's data, into this pool of all of the brands, agencies, they can actually start to get insights that hopefully lift all boats. So what we've been able to show time and time again is as adherence to these standards increases, as brand consistency increases, a lot of different performance metrics start to move in the right direction as well. And then funneling that data back to each agency partner can actually help them do their job a little bit better. But it's you've hit the nail on the head. It's, uh, it's not always an easy road to navigate. I wanted to ask about data and creativity, and I, I think it's really interesting about the, this concept of the dam that you talked about and how there's a lot of content that's good content, bad content that's stuck in this dam. How can we be better at producing content and how can we be better at making sure the content is not stuck in the dam so that our audience gets to see it? Yeah, I think being better... <sighs> It goes back to the old adage, of you can't manage what you can't measure. And I think here it's, you can't optimize, you can't get better if you're not measuring it. So 
where we often start is let's start with the stuff that, that you've learned works and let's figure out how much of your content actually does it. And let's remeasure that and let's make sure it really works for you. And it is driving the business impact that you see. And then what we've done in the past is to, to your point, Kelsey, of having like lots of content stuck in a dam, we can actually take all that content that's in the dam, run it through what we call our pre-flight evaluation tools and annotate that content with a score. So right off the bat, anything that sits in the dam, we have, or the, the marketers have a view as to, hey, is this good content or bad content based on our internal standards? I think then what we're trying to get to is a place where you can easily find good content, right? Here's a bunch of content that meets all of my standards that has a high quality score, et cetera, that I've never used yet. Mm-hmm. And it's about using that data as a way of getting the good stuff to flow to the top so you can actually get it in front of users. One of the things we do on our side is we dedupe every piece of content, meaning that if you run one image or video on five different platforms, years or months apart, we aggregate all the performance data against the kind of the core unit. And so what that means is you can start to then really uh, individually determine, is this a good piece of content and use that data to determine if this is something you want to continue to invest in. Yeah. And I assume, do you also track that sort of at the at the core unit, but also the variations, because I assume Absolutely. you have different layers, different copy, different everything that are, are part of that. And then I assume there's this hierarchy that makes my head explode thinking about, because that then you've got the, all the different ways that you have to categorize this. We, we think about these things as we build measurement systems for people's campaign and, and, and their budget spending. And they want to look at it 8 million ways. And you've just introduced all these new layers <laughs> that, that yeah. is interesting to think about. Yes, absolutely. And it's really tough because when you think about creative measurement, right, that's not something that's being explicitly measured right now. So we've had to introduce new terminology to help teams think about, we, we call this Uh, And it depends again on what part of the product you're in, but overall we think of it as creative excellence, right? So what percentage of your content is excellent as per your defined standards? What is your creative excellence spend rate? How much of your media is actually being deployed to good content? And then we have a way of validating all these assumptions. But the trick for us is it's a new metric because when you measure impact of campaigns and targeting and all of that and platforms, the creative is bubbled under a bunch of other things and and we're trying to split it out so you can understand the role that it plays. Is there anything surprising that you find or have found when it comes to really understanding what drives performance when it comes to creative execution? Um, I think the most surprising things that we find over and over again is just how little content is actually in line with what brands will describe as their own quality standards or their own consistency standards, whatever the case may be. Actually, a big surprise for a lot of the brands that we work with is some ebbs are going and they're like, yeah, no, it's like, we got this. We think we're doing a pretty good job. And you look at the data and the data tells a very different story. From particular insights point of view, when we, a lot of this stuff in in some ways, I, I don't think is, is rocket science. I don't think we're going to tell any of the, the marketeers who are listening anything that would completely blow their mind. But I think what it really emphasized is that some of these basics, which can feel really unsexy, are, are basics for a reason. And they're fundamentally very important. So, so some of the things you find is branding quickly and in the first two seconds is really important. That doesn't mean stick a logo on it. You can find more clever ways to brand, 
but really important, the aspect ratio example I gave, so unsexy. Like I know no one wants to talk about aspect ratio, but what that fundamentally means is you've just wasted a tremendous amount of real estate. And as a result, people don't really engage with your message. We found a bunch of these things around sound. I think something like uh, 90, 95, 96% of Facebook content is watched without sound. So if your message is delivered through sound, that is a completely wasted opportunity. So make sure it works out sound. I think length we find is very important. Cognitive shortcut there is the shorter, the better. So there, there are a lot of things like that, right? And ultimately, the more of these things you adopt, there's almost a linear relationship with a lot of the digital and non-digital performance metrics that we've been lucky enough to sometimes get access to. With consistency, it's a similar story, right? Where one of the things we measure for our brand consistency product is looking at what we think of as like truly branded assets. If we exclude the logo, how many of your assets or creatives use what we what I think the industry calls distinctive brand assets? So an example of a distinctive brand asset would be if you're McDonald's, the Golden Arches, Ronald McDonald, the Happy Meal Box, kind of these cognitive shortcuts. And it's amazing how for brands that have spent billions of dollars building these visual and auditory cognitive cues, so much of their content is truly unbranded, right? Maybe it's got a logo in there, but it's not actually using any of these shortcuts. And so I think there's, I don't think it's because, the, let me rephrase, I think it's never been more difficult to be a marketer, right? Because you're expected to be everything and do everything. You have to produce more content than you ever have before. You have to do it faster. You have to do it cheaper. It, it has to be consistent. It has to be consistent while being customized to a dozen different platforms. And then you have to be creative and data-driven all at the same time. So I think this is really a reflection of like how complex the media landscape became how, in a very quick amount of time. I think that nativity to the medium is a really important thing that a lot of people struggle with. The idea yeah. of really producing your content in a way that's optimized for the specific medium that you're dealing with. And people struggle with this a lot. And, and a lot of tools have been built around efficiently throwing your message at lots of different in lots of different channels, but if it's not optimized, it feels like it's a total waste. Exactly. And there's always this trade-off between do I hand build or do I have to produce in all these ways? And I, I think the answer is probably yes, that you have to do that. So you need some, that that implies that you need some sort of production scalability to make sure that you are really good at taking a concept and rendering it in the dozens or more. I, I don't even know. What, what's the number of formats that that a, a big brand is producing a core asset in? Is it in dozens? Is it in hundreds? <laughs> is it? How should we I think about that? It depends on how we define core asset. Assuming copy variations do not count as part of the core asset, then I think it's more in the range of dozens. If, if we include things like copy variations and things like that, then there we're, we're starting to get into hundreds, um, sometimes thousands. We had one brand that we worked with who ran a dynamic kind of creatively optimized campaign where they had, I believe for one campaign that ran over a couple of months, they produced 93,000 versions of ads. One campaign, that's a lot. <laughs> it, it is a lot. And of course it makes it challenging to get your arms around this thing. So yeah. a, a lot of your, a, a lot of your customers obviously are, are, are big brands, but think about medium sized companies. So if you're a, $500 million company or a $50 million company, what are the kind of things that you should think about 
to try to drive a more consistent, higher quality brand asset experience for your audience? I think the depending on how much smaller company size um, does not always necessarily equate to less content produced. Mm -hmm. But if it does, I think it's about a lot of the things that we talked about earlier, the branding, the aspect ratio, the sound optimization, product and people up front, those kinds of things, they still apply. Meta analyses and lots of aggregated studies that consistently show that these are the right things to do across a variety of industries and verticals. The, the good news is you can, you can have a chance of trying to at least do that manually or set up your internal best practice guide and train your team on that. So they're always thinking about those things. You might not necessarily need a tool at that stage, but that obviously depends on your content volume production. I think usually what we find is if you're producing a couple dozen pieces of content a month, then know these, know why they're important right? And try and build that into your content production process. Once you get into over a couple thousand pieces a year, that's where technology should probably help because it may not be the best use of your team's time. And as you get a little bit bigger, a little more visible, at least, and voluminous in the content that you produce, you start to deal with issues like people, even consumers, taking your content, modifying it, spreading it out there, things like that. How is the industry going to handle that over time? Are we going to see NFTs built into creative units somehow so that you can say that this is actually a genuine McDonald's ad, not something some kid made in his basement somewhere? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't know. Is the probably the short and fair answer. We actually were just talking internally about using our technology to do an analysis of NFTs to see what we can find, but haven't quite figured out the scope of that yet. I think there, there are two problems, right? So the first one is keeping up with the scale of content production. Are we going to rely more on user-generated content even than we do today? I don't know. We're exploring the idea of, for, for companies that specialize in user-generated content, can we do a similar plugin to the plugin that I described with the digital asset manager, where we can actually help brands select from all the user-generated content that is being posted to find the ones that already meet their consistency standards across a pre-vetted content stream, though it's user-generated. I think to your point about how do you enforce that this is truly coming from the brand, I don't know. That's not a problem we've tackled yet. I know there are a number of companies that do this in the retail space, figuring out like fakes from originals. I don't know how you'd apply it here, but definitely something that will continue to be an issue, certainly, especially with deep fakes and, and all that stuff, without a doubt. And on the other side, on that vein, I apologize in advance for my nerdy questions, but I tend to do this, is that I can do this because you're an ex-Googler, so you have to be a nerd somewhere <laughs> in your history, is are, are we going to be at the point relatively soon? So I, I look at something like CreativeX, and obviously you have a really broad data set and in a lot of interesting information. Can you then apply some GPT-3 engine to the thing and actually have the system create highly performant creative and, dis and disintermediate the creative industry itself? Are we going to start to see the at least variations being produced more more programmatically that are on brand versus, versus relying on, on humans for creative output? 
I don't know. I think it's tempting to say, yes, we will see this, but I'm not sure for two reasons. So there was, I think, an experiment. I want to say it was the 90s. So obviously quite a long time ago now where I think they tried to use technology at the time to create the perfect ad. And they analyzed some data and this ad came back. And again, I can try and dig it up. And it was basically an ad that had a baby, a dog, and a rainbow, because these are all the things that people like. And it was a terrible ad. It was an absolutely terrible ad. Data says dog, so there you go. There's your dog and, and there's your baby. I think we've gotten a bit more sophisticated since then. If you look at the way dynamic uh, creative optimization works, they still work on modular template systems, is my understanding. So there's some core of core, there's a core piece or core canvas, and then you have these modular elements, which can be swapped in and out very quickly. That's like how product feed ads work. I guess maybe if you're a direct response, and I think we are seeing this already in a lot of direct response advertising, there is rapid creation of ads. I think for your the big branding campaigns, I don't see the role that people play in creative ideation and even creative execution of that original kind of piece going away anytime soon. Well, that's comforting for many people out there. So th that's good to hear. So tell us a little bit about how you see the evolution of the internal creative team at a company. How is that going to change over the next few years or how has it changed? Because it probably has already. Obviously, the skills requirements are evolving pretty significantly. But So what do you see as the major things that have changed as far as your internal creative teams? I think the biggest thing that we see is this need to be a renaissance man or woman within the department. So it's no longer enough to be creatively gifted. You have to be creatively gifted and very analytical as well. I think what we've seen time and time again is the creative teams within an organization are one of the last teams to get measurement tools. And so a big focus is now being placed on how do you give them the tools that they need to even be able to fight the battles they need to fight, right? Because if you talk to, and again, this is obviously a caricatured example, but the way that media agencies and creative agencies sometimes describe the battle that they have to me is they'll say the creative team will spend lots and lots of time coming up with an idea, doing focus group, research, et cetera, come up with an idea. And they get into the room with a media agency and the media agency has so much more data. And so they'll throw out some statistic about, we saw when we did this, it didn't work with this audience. So here's how we think that you should tweak the ad or tweak the message. And the creative team often doesn't have enough sort of real time data to fight back. And what we're seeing a lot of organizations that are building content hubs is this idea of layering in tools to try and get everyone to the same data playing field. And I assume one of the challenges and one of the things you can probably do for people is about discovering the questions to ask. Because the big challenge that a lot of, when people get new tools, so new measurement for the first time, they often don't know the questions to ask. They say, well, I can measure things. Okay, what do I measure? What, what are the variables that I should look at varying so I can figure out what is different? Can you help surface some of those insights so that people know which questions to ask and, and know which dials to twist, twist within their execution? We've, yes, we've done a bit of this. So the, day, the, the way we did it when we started is very different than the way we do it now. So when we started, we basically let our computer vision models run wild over, over all the ads that we saw. 
And we would be like, oh, dogs and ads, that seems to do well. Here's some data about dogs. And what we found very painfully was that is just not the way the creative process works. And actually, that kind of data puts people off because it starts to it starts to create a very prescriptive way of thinking about creative expression. Where we've moved to now is trying to provide more data around concepts rather than objects. The way we think about this is you're right that most marketers may not always know the questions to ask, but they have hypotheses. They have things that they're debating about internally. So one of my favorite questions has always been when you're sitting around determining if this is a good campaign or a bad campaign, if this is a good creative execution or not, what are the what's the heart of the debate you're having? Let us try and automate and measure that for you so you can have some data to answer that question. And once that floodgate is open, usually we find no um, shortage of ideas in terms of things they can track and measure. So what about these companies that can't implement technologies, ones that don't have the bandwidth or don't have the resources to do so? How can they better vet their content? It's tough. I, I think if they, I think it, it comes down to clarity of what good content means to them, making sure that all the marketing teams, everyone really at the company knows what that is. So you have an army of people who are becoming your content watchdogs, as it were. I think it's about training the agencies. I think it's also building it into your workflow, even if not from a technology point of view. Like for example, when we write copy internally, we always have another person read the copy you've written. If for nothing other than spell, not not spell checking, but like grammar checking and all of that, just to make sure, hey, are we still using the informal voice? Are we doing these things that we consider part of our brand identity? So maybe it's a workflow. It's a workflow streamlining. I don't want to say automation that gets you to think about a process for shipping content versus when you can't necessarily implement tech to do it. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I, I think we're getting, unfortunately, close to the end of our time. And uh, I think Kelsey probably has one more question after this that we always ask. One, one thing before we wrap up, though, it would be great if you could tell people how they can learn more about CreativeX. The easiest way to learn about CreativeX is to go to our website at creativex.com. And we publish lots of research that we do as well, uh, which is usually just front and center on, on the site. So if you're looking for best practices and all of that, we tend to share any insights we get from our latest data on there. Great. And we will include a link in case you need to know the spelling, even though it's pretty simple in this case, we'll include it on in our show notes. And I think with that, Kelsey, we have one more question. Anastasia, this has been great. I would love to just understand maybe some advice that you would give to CMOs and those aspiring to be one someday. I thought about this a lot. I, I came prepared because I know you guys asked this question. My, my biggest advice is Assume that your audience is not like you. And what I mean by that is there's a tremendous amount of research that shows that I think what some people have called the empathy delusion, that as marketers, we tend to assume that our audience is like us, they're motivated by the same things, et cetera. And when we produce marketing, we actually are trying to produce it for ourselves. And we use the kind of, I like it, I don't like it test versus the, is this something that's actually relevant for the audience that I'm trying to engage with? So Fundamentally, the advice is, is to listen um, more than anything else and to be aware that that you are not necessarily the end user of the product that you're trying to, to promote. Great. This has been awesome. That's a wonderful uh, wrap up for our conversation. But thank you so much for your time today, Anastasia. And make sure to follow the next CMO and plan out on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
And if you have any ideas for topics or guests, you can email us at the next CMO at lana.com. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Anastasia. Bye. Thank you.